Would you rather I gag you? Why must you do anything to me? You've given me a very exciting ten minutes. It will make me the center of interest at teas and dinners for weeks to come. Think how much more interesting your story would be if I brutally gag you. It's a much better story if I could say that you locked the gentleman in the safe and dashed out. Well, you don't actually have to dash. Then everyone will ask you why you didn't call out. That will make you an accomplice after the fact. Oh, that's even more thrilling. Hello, and welcome to Season 4 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1932, and Tanya Goldman joins us to discuss Trouble in Paradise, as well as William Dieterle's Jewel Robbery. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. Hello, everyone. We're here with Tanya Goldman. Welcome. Those of you who listen to Film Formally might remember our episode, but for the rest of us, who are you and what do you do? Hi, Devin. Thanks for having me. I'm Tanya Goldman. I am a film historian and my work specializes in the 1930s and 40s very frequently, although I tend to look at documentaries, newsreels and sort of radical leftist documentaries of the 1930s. So a bit differently in my work, but, you know, I love classic Hollywood, so I'm very excited to get to nerd out on Trouble in Paradise (laughs) and some other related topics that I'm sure we'll go into. Yeah, those of you who read the episode title might notice that today's episode is not only Trouble in Paradise, it is about the 1932 William Dieterle film, Jewel Robbery. You might wonder, why are we pairing up Trouble in Paradise? Well, one reason is we are going to be doing three Trouble in Paradise episodes, with two more coming over the next two weeks. Two is that Jewel Robbery and Trouble in Paradise represent two exquisite entries in both the pre-code canon and the gentleman crook subgenre. Both of them prominently feature robbery, larceny. So our kind of unofficial title for this episode is Larceny and Pre-Code Romantic Comedies, because that's what these both are. They're romantic comedies in which things are stolen and we never have to feel bad about it. Yeah, to me, when we were talking about Trouble in Paradise, I instantly thought of Jewel Robbery as an interesting pairing. One, because I'm obsessed with William Powell, who is my favorite actor ever. And two, because they really do sort of cover similar ground, but in very different ways. They're both similar subjects. They're both set in glamorous European cities, but yet one has the very Lubitsch type touch and a lightness to it. Whereas Dieter Lee's film, Jewel Robbery, is much less polished, much a little more body, perhaps. I don't even know if body is the right word, but it almost has a screwball sensibility. Yes. At least in the way Kay Francis's character plays out in Jewel Robbery as well. It really, I think, brings out the contrast between the two works, really brings out that lightness of the Lubitsch touch. I think they were a really fun pairing to watch back and forth. Trouble in Paradise is particularly interesting because if there's one Lubitsch film that is often cited as the quintessential Lubitsch film, it's this film. And, you know, I have my own little nits to pick with that because I think the idea of a quintessential Lubitsch film is a tough thing when half is over is the Berlin years of which this film does not resemble in the least. But, you know, as far as what he was up to in Hong Hollywood, this feels like some sort of apex where, you know, you have one of the three leads. Again, this is a classic love triangle film. You have Herbert Marshall, who we'll talk about, who is, you know, the first act has him meeting, falling in love with Lily, played by Miriam Hopkins, who we'll also talk about. And then the second act has them both. They're both crooks. They case each other out. They get married and they go on a crime spree across Europe. They end up in Paris, where they essentially shake down Kay Francis, Madame Collet, the heiress of a large perfume company. And the film navigates crime and navigates different types of love and romance, different types of sex. And then we have Jewel Robbery, which is not a Lubitsch film. It is a William Dieterle film. However, it is clearly influenced by Ernst Lubitsch. It's so obvious. And you know, it also happens to have Kay Francis in the lead role as the Baroness. And her co-lead is William Powell playing the robber. He doesn't even have a name. He's just the robber. He's just the robber. We could talk about the parallels, but Jewel Robbery plays to me almost like one of those airport dime romance novels where, you know, the woman meets this man who sweets her off her feet because he's a rogue and breaks society's rules. And William Powell, who plays the robber, is this incredible fantasy. He is a perfect man. (laughs) You know, everyone I know who's seen this film, including myself, has fallen completely in love with William Powell and that character. 
if we're going to be completely body about it or think about why it is pre-code, he is bringing marijuana to... Yes. Yes. I mean, that's... Come on, we're ignoring the elephant of the room. Let's step back half a second because, you know, the whole major centerpiece of the first act of this film is a jewel store robbery. And to rob that store, he comes in with a gang of armed thugs. And yes, he plies everyone who he can ply with marijuana cigarettes. They're clearly marijuana. It's, they say it's drugged cigarettes, but it's clearly pot. Yep. Clearly marijuana. He manages to, you know, get all the jewelry into two suitcases and convince a police officer security guard to put the jewels for him in the car while he's still in the store, flying the other people with marijuana. And then he locks up her husband and her basically lover that we learn is her lover in a vault while he's proceeding to romance Hey Francis outside of the vault. There's a funny line where, you know, he gives her the option of, oh, which cage should she go into? And she's just like, how about none? And then he's like, okay, cool. I'll put two other guys together while I, you know, romance you. And now, madame, with which gentleman would you prefer to share a safe? I prefer not to be locked up at all with either of them. Very diplomatic. In that case, we lock the gentlemen up together. <laughs> that bit with the romance, I mean, oh my God, like their interplay is some of the most exciting romantic comedy banter I've ever heard. I mean, there's this one bit where he's, you know, taking the rings off her fingers and then she slaps him and has this immediate reaction where she goes, <laughs> William Powell's response, you think he's going to be upset? He goes, how intimate. Yeah. <laughs> it's That's the film in a nutshell. But anyway, they flirt a lot. There's a lot of flirt and intrigue. And then the end. And I love the end so much. I just adore this film. But it very much plays as a sort of bargain basement. I mean, it's not a Lubitsch. No. The wink of it is actually kind of cute and almost to me seems like something Lubitsch would do. But the rest of the film being much more overt in its comedy, like bigger in its comedy back when they're yeah. at the store with the music and things. And it's, I don't know. This is not a film that is interested in least with counterpoint or subtlety. This is an escapist film fantasy where our romantic fantasy character happens to be an unrepentant thief. This is where we can kind of start comparing it to Trouble in Paradise, probably. The film never even faints towards any moral problematization of this robbery. William Powell steals not only the aristocrats' jewelry, he steals their wives, gets away with it, and the audience's target of identification is Kay Francis. We see the whole film through her eyes, so the entire time we're just starry-eyed at this wonderful man who's come to rescue her from this life of boredom, and she couldn't be happier. The one thing I'll just also point out of contrast is at one point in the initial holdup, there are people holding guns. Some of his cronies are holding guns to mm -hmm. everyone as well. So there is actually a danger, like literal, in that there's a gun. Yeah. Whereas in Trouble in Paradise, there is no actual violence involved in this. Like there's no threat of danger. Mm -hmm. I think that we get in the sense of trouble in paradise, or at least he's this gentleman crook, whereas like Powell's character is definitely like lower class, like maybe comes out of the tenement, had a tough, tough life <laughs> playing cool where, you know, it's kind of hard to believe there's that great line from Gaston, Herbert Marshall's character, where he likens himself to like a self-made crook. A self-made crook. Yeah, a self-made crook. Or when he is lying, obviously, to Cape Francis. But he says that, like, oh, I used to be, I'm like nouveau poor. But like, you could almost believe that with his character in the way with Powell's character probably came up through the ranks. Whereas, you know, what is the backstory of Gaston? It kind of feels like. It's interesting. The parallel here is that in neither film is the idea of stealing treated as this massive wrong the way it would be in things like Desire, where the Marlene Dietrich character, which is a postcode film, 1936, we're going to cover it in season five. She is made to pay for her crimes and their punishment is she has to be with Gary Cooper. Oh, I mean, that's such a horrible punishment. The horror. <laughs> I know the horror of having to be with Gary Cooper. Being with an uneven actor. No. <laughs> In both of these films, though, the question of the morality doesn't enter into it. Yeah. In Trouble in Paradise, there is some shading, right? There's this relationship that brews between the Herbert Marshall character and the Kay Francis character on the basis of him robbing her. However, the way the film deals with it is incredibly interesting, where it is treated as essentially this masochistic relationship, right? Where, you know, he is pretending to be someone who wants to be essentially her manservant. Madame Collet, if I were your father, which fortunately I am not, and you made any attempt to handle your own business affairs, I would give you a good spanking. In a business way, of course. And then she, in a very erotic way, sits back on the couch and goes, What would you do if you were my secretary? The same thing. 
you're hired. And you can tell that, you know, the idea of this exchange ties together this basically an S&M act of spanking <laughs> into her own erotic desires and their relationship where at the end, spoiler alert, I mean, who here, if you're listening this far in the podcast, you've probably seen Trouble in Paradise. So one thing that's often I often hear people bring up when I show this movie to them is they're a little confused by how in the end she basically consents to being robbed. She consents to having Herbert get away with her jewels and and seems, in fact, fine with it, almost happy. Yeah. And that's just a further continuation of, you know, in this case, robbery is an act of this kind of S&M relationship language. It's really interesting. Well, yeah, I have in like my notes when I was watching, it was like stealing as foreplay. Yeah. It's funny because it's not even the right word. I kept thinking about like stealing is like sublimating like sex, but yes. it's not like stealing is the sex for a lot of them as well in this film. And it's just really, really fascinating. You make me think of that line, her only sex appeal is in that safe, yeah. you know, <laughs> Herbert's line where he's trying to defend, but really he's revealing more about himself, right? Instead of saying what he thinks he's saying, which is, I'm not interested in her, only her jewels. He is equating her sex appeal with her jewels and the act of robbing, which doesn't separate them and conflates them. Yeah, exactly. And then that's what's, you know, kind of so fun about this film. But then speaking of To the Shades of Grey, which Jewel Robbery does not have, I think that they're both great films, but one of them you would read about in a screen writing class as a good screenplay, you know, Trouble in Paradise, where jewel robbery, you probably wouldn't study it in the higher kind of echelons. But the fact that Herbert Marshall's character discovers that she's being robbed by her, you know, business guy for her company. It's like everybody's feeling. You have the C. Aubrey Smith character, who is Adolf Geron in the very last year when you could name a character Adolf. So essentially, you know, the Herbert Marshall character in the process of robbing Kay Francis reveals that her confidant for decades, this old man played by C. Aubrey Smith, is also ripping her off. Yeah. And it almost feels like this smokescreen the film is doing very knowingly where it's like, OK, everyone's a crook. Everyone you think is straight, they're a crook, too. And that's where I think that like the sophistication of this film perhaps is better than Jewel. I don't like using the word better, but it has a greater sophistication or shades of gray or morality that runs through that we don't see in, in Jewel Robbery, where just stealing is fun. Everything is great. The thing about jewel robbery, too, is that, and this also, I mean, ties the films together a little, is that we're kind of separated from reality in that both of the robber characters, the gentlemen in these films, they have superhuman abilities. They don't operate by the rules as the rest of the characters. They can essentially do what they want. We never get the sense that they're in any real danger because like Bugs Bunny... <laughs> We always assume that they're going to pull something out of their hat that will completely negate any conflict around them. Oh, I like that. But in the case of William Powell and Jewel Robbery, very, very simple. He is just superhuman. There's no if, and, or buts about it. He is a cartoon character come to rescue Kay Francis from her milieu. In the case of Herbert Marshall, it's much deeper. Yeah. Where his superhuman ability is, he's a typical, in fact, I would call him maybe the archetypical Lubitsch protagonist. He is, like he says, the self-made crook. He is what he wants to be because he has worked to make him that way. He beats all his foes because he's stylish, because yeah. he is so good at pretending to be the thing he pretends to be. It isn't that he was born into it. It isn't that he's more moral than anyone. No, he's better than them because he understands the importance of style. There is the level of, though, he does definitely feel emotionally conflicted, though, in the end of the film when he goes yes. with Lily. Whereas, you know, Powell's is superhuman. He goes off. He's like, I'll whisk you away, lady. We'll have a good time. <laughs> and maybe he's attracted to her and he'll have a good time. But it doesn't necessarily feel like there's like this emotional depth to him in a way that with Marshall's character, we do get that he has a level of conflict in leaving Kay Francis at the end. He does. And that's one of the magic tricks of Trouble in Paradise, isn't it? Right. He's morally conflicted. And we as the audience are genuinely conflicted. Like every time I watch that film and a lot of people I watched it with have said the exact same thing. I do not know what I want the final romantic configuration to be. Yeah, Obviously, no. Design for Living, he figured it out. It's all three of them get to be together. Yes, and it's perfect. But in this, th that isn't going to happen, mostly due to class differences. There's yeah. the element of class here, which is way more real in this than it is in any of his other films. Yeah. And yet, at the end, I feel conflicted about the fact that he ends up with Lily. It's really interesting. Yeah. No, I do as well. You know, and you're like, okay, they should be together because and at the end, there's, you know, just the book ending, the perfect book ending of the way he grabs this, he grabs this, she grabs this. And it's just, you know, this perfect ending. So it for me, it makes me feel good that they're together at the end because of that sort of the genius of the system, as Thomas Shad mm -hmm. always says, where we have the rigorous like beginning and bookends that cutely like tie up the film that it to me, I'm contented with the ending because you get that cuteness of the who stole what kind of constantly going back and forth. 
work with them. It is a conflict that I wouldn't be upset if he ended up with Kay Francis's character either. What you mentioned about this is something that we kind of jumped over. And that's, you know, we talked about the love language of thievery in a very one-sided S&M way between Kay and Herbert. But what about the love language of thievery between Lily, played by Miriam Hopkins, and Herbert, who plays Gaston? You know, how do they actually fall in love with each other? It's the act of stealing. And, you know, there's that lovely scene in Venice. And I truly think the Venice opening is one of the most romantic acts of any film ever made of any medium. I watch it. My heart swoons, even though it's so silly. But there's this... (laughs) great scene where, you know, Lily and Gaston, they realize that the other is a thief and that makes them fall in love with each other even more. And they express it by stealing from each other. And, you know, that's a huge contrast to the Kay Francis relationship where, you know, these two are professional. I'm stealing this idea from William Paul a little, so I apologize, William and Bill, if you're listening. The two of them establish a professional rivalry that creates this romantic chemistry in them versus the relationship with Kay Francis is this, because of that class dimension, is this more one-sided give and take. One partner is the dominant one. It's so fascinating. I mean, you could psychoanalyze this movie for ages. I want to talk about the beginning of the film briefly, you know, in Venice. So, so, you know, this is from 1932. And I was really struck by the sweeping camera work in the beginning of the film with a lot of camera movement, which clearly, though, is silent footage with sound over it. But we see so much of these early for the first five-ish years after sound comes, the camera becomes, you know, we get in silent film, and I'm sure you've seen this with some of the Lubish stuff, the camera is going crazy often, Mm -hmm. moving around, and then it becomes really static. The films sort of have a buzz to them because of the camera. So with these films, I was really struck by starting to see a lot of this movement around Venice in the beginning, which is sort of atypical, although clearly the use of music allows that to happen, where we get this loud sort of orchestral music kind of bringing it. But I love that it starts with a garbage man. I mean, to me, that Yes, the famous garbage galondola driver. I mean, I'm going to have to give another disclaimer to our listeners. I'm going to be referring to William Paul's book, Ernst Lubitsch's American Comedy, a lot during the next two seasons, because it is, in my opinion, perhaps the single best critical analysis of Lubitsch. Unfortunately, it's out of print. He has a reading of this film as a dialectical one. And the fact that Lubitsch is essentially a purveyor of dialectics more than he is a sort of, you know, a satirist or someone who's cynical, where this film starts, as you mentioned, Tanya, with a gondola operator. But we don't see that. The first thing we see is someone collecting garbage. And what is that garbage man collecting it in? A gondola. Then he sings in the most beautiful soprano. I don't know music, so I'm guessing it's a soprano. I apologize. Anyone who knows he's a baritone or something. You know, you have this immediate juxtaposition of the quotidian every day with the romantic, right? Especially for an American audience. We're in Venice and it's beautiful tenor or, you know, soprano. But then it gets punctured by garbage. Exactly. So you have this immediate joy in going, okay, we are revealing the underbelly of this beautiful city. We are reveling in the garbage of society, the thieves. But those thieves are, in this case, the garbage and the height of artistic culture are one. Every cop is a criminal. The thieves are the heroes. They are the most sophisticated. And the film runs on that contrast, that tension. You have, you know, Herbert introduced by that tracking shot you mentioned, but to place that in kind of the continuum, we've seen that tracking shot once before in Monte Carlo. It was a vertical boom up. Suddenly, Lubitsch has taken that in that context in Monte Carlo. It's a fun shot, but here it's this poetic sweeping and the music that comes in. You know, you start with Edward Everett Horton, who that's the first time we see him in any of Lubitsch's films. He's going to be a character actor we return to. We love him. We stand for him. The best the best. We could do a whole podcast on how much I love him, but... The back half of this podcast might end up being like a litany of all the actors in this movie we love and who they are, (laughs) but the camera backs out, cuts to a model, drifts into another hotel room. You cut back and it's Herbert Marshall and his servant talking about how they should start with cocktails. And it is the most romantic thing. What I love about it is immediately you just get this, okay, we're in this swooning romantic mode here. We're being taken along. This is not prosaic stuff. This is a romanticized vision of what it means to be a thief. And the rest of the film follows suit. It makes me happy to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I was thinking about, I was like, I don't know if I have anything particularly profound to say about this film, other Mm -hmm. than that it's just lovely and you just want to be around for the ride. And there's this sense of the hangout film. You know, I think about, you know, Hawks' films like Rio Bravo, where you just want to hang out with the characters. And it's like, I usually don't want to hang out with those characters, but I do really want to hang out with Miriam Hopkins and Herbert Marshall in that room. The chemistry they have in that first scene is just remarkable. The way that it establishes the characters, too, is just lovely. Where Herbert is this active protagonist. I mean, despite the fact that Herbert Marshall had one leg, 
all the shots of him running are a stunt double, which is blows my mind when I watch it. It is so elegantly done and it fits in. It's lucky that Lubitsch is a man of inserts and a man of cutaways because it fits in perfectly with his style and in fact heightens it. So every time we see Herbert Marshall run up those stairs, that is in fact a stunt double because he was unable to do that because he lost his leg in the war. He had a fully wooden leg. Actually, the stories about him visiting veterans hospitals and stuff are very touching. Oh, wow. Yeah, he helped rehabilitate other soldiers who had lost limbs in war. It's a very touching story. I mean, the man was also a giant, like, rake. He had affairs all over town. Including with both Hopkins and Francis, we've learned during the film. Yes, which, again, you know, more power to him, I guess. I'm so sorry for his wife. Well, I just love, like, Scott Amon, the Lubitsch biographer. You know, he says that, quote, much married Marshall managed affairs with Francis and Miriam Hopkins. And I just think, I was like, wow, both of them on set is just, how did that work out? One other thing I was really struck by in the first scene was the way that Hopkins acts and how she's not like her body. She's often talking away from Marshall, mm-hmm. like especially in these beginning shots where her body's positioned away and she's like looking away and talking at him, but not looking at him. What I found really an intriguing style. And from what I've been reading, there's a new biography of Miriam Hopkins by Alan Berger. Miriam Hopkins' life at Films of a Hollywood Rebel and said that sort of that acting style comes from her training in the theater. Mm. Now I wanted to go watch all of her films to see if this is something she does in other films I never noticed before. But I was so struck by it, especially in this opening scene, considering, you know, that it becomes a love scene that she's sort of just completely looking away. And one other kind of cute anecdote that I have from this book that I had read was later in the film, Miriam Hopkins, there was a scene where she was sitting in profile and slowly turned her chair until she was full face on the camera, which was interfering with the way Francis was acting. And she complained and supposedly Lubitsch then nailed her chair to the floor for that scene so Hopkins wouldn't move. This ties in with my little talk about the way these characters are introduced, because for all that Marshall is introduced as an active character, but also like a steady one, he rarely is seen in a haste unless he wants to perform in a haste, unless he wants to show his vigorousness. But Hopkins, like you mentioned, she's looking away off frame at all times. Her character kind of is constantly distracted by on-screen space and always moves into it. And there's so many times in this film, there's a frame, she leaves it and another character has to move to follow her. She vacates the screen space constantly. She's a character who's always on the defensive. She is clearly someone, we know she's a thief because she's always a little bit on alert. She's like a cat who is not at rest. And so that contrasts very well with Kay Francis's character, who is defined by stasis. This is all kind of crystallizes in that climax, the last major scene in the film where Hopkins comes in, leaves, Herbert Marshall follows her reluctantly in a kind of a lumbering slowness, and Francis stays in the room knowing that Marshall will eventually come back. Yes. And that's all three characters in a nutshell. You have movement, stasis, and Marshall caught in between. I have to credit, once again, William Paul, like in certain forms, has already gone over this in his book. And also even the way that Kay Francis, what is she associated with in this film? One place. She is always in her Parisian apartment. Right. And that's the paradise. The apartment itself is just gorgeous. And I was watching the film with my spouse. I hadn't seen it for a number of years. And he was like, I feel like the staircase should be its own character. Like I could watch Herbert Marshall just go up and down that staircase and the butler up and down that staircase all of the time because the interiors are just stunning in this film. They are. And so two episodes ago, we talked about One Hour With You with Matt Severson. And he pointed out for the first time in the show, Hans Dreyer, the production designer of many of these films. And this might be his masterpiece. It is this Art Deco Bauhaus mashup of a place, this huge, beautiful apartment that Key Francis lives in. One thing I was interesting was then thinking about, there was one weird point when I was watching Jewel Robbery near one of the safes. And I was like, is this the same set? And it's not because they're, you know, one is Paramount, one is Warner Brothers. I mean, completely different. But, you know, so many of that design that we see in this Trouble in Paradise partner, we see in so many, it's so of its time. It is really interesting the way that the film deals with the case. Francis character, who is Madame Collet. Her life is defined by this void. She lives in a void. It's this deliberately minimalist space. And all of her agency is expressed by kind of counterintuitively not making decisions. Like her first scene, what does she do? Her board is saying, we have to cut wages. And she goes, basically, in so many words, this is so boring. Let's put it off. Oh, come on. And on one hand, we think, 
oh, what a frivolous person. She doesn't know business affairs. But really what's happening there is that she is playing the part of a frivolous person who doesn't understand business affairs and has no interest to enact her humanism, right? I read that scene as her just not wanting to cut wages because, you know, perhaps she believes that the workers deserve those wages. I think that's a reading that is intended. And she is kind of obfuscating that through others' perception of her. And she does this again and again throughout the film. I mean, especially when our two friends, Edward Everett Horton and Charlie Ruggles, are same yes. thing. I mean, we know she's not really interested in either of them in that way, but keeps them both around. But to go back to your point about the boardroom, I definitely interpreted that way. Oh, this is so boring. Put it off because I don't want to give them money. But then the tension of this comes back frivolity when she goes to the store and buys a bag and they offer her this one and she's like no and then she buys the more expensive one Mm -hmm. it constantly kind of offsets that but i agree with your reading on that he does kind of then flip back on that when she goes buys this completely you know insanely expensive handbag yeah she's simultaneously a she is deserving of the robbery in that she is this frivolous rich person who lives in a literal like cloister yeah But also she's humanist and has way more wherewithal. I mean, that also comes back in the climax, too, where she uses Herbert Marshall's kind of assumptions about her own kind of frivolity to kind of torture him. She's been told that he is a thief and she's coming to test him and torture him with the safe. And she goes, what was the number again? Oh, oh," as if she is helpless. But no, she's actually twisting the knife on him. Definitely. It's incredible. And I mean, you also mentioned her interactions with Horton and Ruggles. There is that lovely line. What is it? Don't be so downhearted, Major. You're not the only one I don't love. Don't be so downhearted, Major. You're not the only one I don't love. I don't love Francois either. As if that makes it, I mean, it's this like she delivers it as if she's this kind of airhead, but she's clearly just toying with these two sad men. And this is where she's to go back to jewel robbery, which we started with. And they're such different performances. I mean, this character is a much more three dimensional written character. You know, she has much more agency and thought and we get an inner life in her or at least a knowingness of what she's Mm -hmm. doing that in something like jewel robbery, where she does definitely come across the more frivolous rich lady who just likes shiny things and then can get swept up by the stylish rogue William Powell and goes away. And it is about complete excitement and things of that nature. Whereas in Trouble in Paradise, it is that, but it's not. She's the one kind of more pulling the strings Mm -hmm. often in this case. And she has that sexual knowingness in both roles. But I feel like in Jewel Robbery, she's a little more almost like proto screwball in the way that she acts, where she's very, you know, animated. Whereas in this film, it is a more, you know, suave type of restrained performance. Jewel Robbery is only available on a DVD, and that DVD has some weirdness to it. And everything, the soundtrack is higher pitched than it feels like yes. it ought to be. <laughs> yes. And everyone moves fast. And I kind of suspect, is this DVD running fast? And that contributes to, I think, my feeling that the Key Francis performance is inherently screwball on this. She talks really oh, fast. Oh, that's a really good point. Everyone does, but she patters. In comparison, in Trouble in Paradise, with a few exceptions, her character has this slow, melodic yeah. voice, you know? And again, Lubitsch was known for directing his actors with line readings, with, go through the scene with this pace. Mm. Mm, let's see what I do with my hands. Yeah, he would do that. And you can feel Hopkins and Francis being directed in that way where Francis in some scenes, it almost feels like she's some sort of like downer. And then in Jewel Robbery, she feels like she's on uppers the whole time. In Jewel Robbery, yeah, her character is defined by her desires in any given moment and her malaise and her boredom. And she's entirely acted upon. Yes. And in Trouble in Paradise, part of the dynamic of her character is that she seems like someone who is only acted upon when she, in fact, has a sneaky amount of agency and she gets the last word in the film. She's like the queen in Rosita, Irene Rich, where she gets the benefit of having the last beat to herself. She gets to make the final decision of, okay, I'm doing this. I'm letting you go away. It's great. Yeah, no, that's such a good contrast. Yeah, she definitely has more agency in making the decisions there. Yeah, I think that is very well put. You know, since you brought it up on the DVD, so Jewel Robbery, for me, I don't even have it's available on one of the Forbidden Hollywood box sets, right? Yes. And I actually don't have that. Terrible I transfer. Have, oh, terrible. But I think I have like a bootleg. Like, I think I got it offline for like 10 bucks. Yeah, the sound is, I was thinking about the sound in the scene when he's robbing the jewel Really store. bad. But part of me kind of thought it was deliberate. But I think you bringing up the point of like, oh, no, is this a sound decision is really interesting. 
Like, is it a transfer issue? I'm pretty sure that the transfer has been heavily denoised in terms of the sound. Like, you can tell that there's warbling. I start to get an ear for like, okay, have they tried to take away all the tapists? And if they have, everyone sounds like a bit of like a robot. Yeah. And also, I mean, the leveling, each reel has a different volume. It's a disaster. It's also noting that Trouble in Paradise is only available via Spanish Blu-ray that is not very good. And the Criterion DVD from years ago. Yes, which is also, it was good back 20 years ago. Yeah, it's amazing that this film is not well represented on home video right now. I mean, that is issue with so many movies. Yes, I mean, literally the first season with well-represented films on home video is season five. Yay! You know what? I think it's time we should talk about the actors because we have more than any episode in this whole show introductions for a bevy of incredibly consequential performers in both these films. Let's start with Herbert Marshall because I think he's the first character introduced in that film. I, again, before we chatted, I hadn't watched this film in a number of years. And it's funny, but he does this role. He really stands in for me. Like, to me, this is the Lubitsch character. I mean, to me, Mm -hmm. in this film, he really epitomizes. To me, when I think of Ernst Lubitsch, I think of Herbert Marshall in this role. That kind of suave and debonairness to the role, the tuxedo. I mean, for me, that's where Lubitsch touched. Like, everything for me comes together in this specific role. But it's interesting because when I think about Marshall... I tend to think of him in foreign correspondence and Mm. the letter and Razor's Edge, like some of these later films. So it's odd that it's sort of like to me that I think of Marshall as his, you know, visage epitomizing Lubitsch. But then when I think of him, I think of him as different films. And I usually think of him more in a sinister way. Like this role to me is a kind of an outlier as opposed to when I think of him in other films. It's interesting how in Angel, he's kind of the more buttoned up guy. Yeah. Yeah. Virtually every role I've seen him in is not this type that he's in this film where he's this debonair. But in this film, he kind of is that where he's buttoned up. Like there's that great little bit where Kay Francis and Miriam Hopkins hide their dunking from him because they know he's really snobbish in this, but he's a self-made snob. Yeah. The reason why we don't like snobbishness is associated with people who are born into things, right? Oh, you're aristocracy. You didn't earn what you have, but he earned his snobbishness, which I think is, that's the Lubitsch thing. How about Miriam Hopkins? And you mentioned that you're a huge Miriam Hopkins fan. Who is she? This is our second time seeing her, but we didn't really address her in the first one, which is smiling time. I don't necessarily know if I'm a huge Miriam Hopkins fan per se. Anytime I'd seen her in things, I liked her as sort of the answer to me. And I feel like she's sort of this forgotten actress. She sort of tapers out. Mm-hmm. Because she's in these really important early 30s films. She's in the Mamoulian, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and infamously the story of Temple Drake. And is... Becky Sharp in like sort of our first three strip Technicolor film from 35. So she's like all of these really famous films. She has kind of a snap to her is sort of how I like to think of her. And then I see her sometimes popping up when she's a little older and kind of, you know, like I feel like she has this golden age moment with Trouble in Paradise, Design for Living, Temple Drake, Mr. Hyde, like this like few years where she's like at the top and then already sort of kind of just gets knocked out by the end of the 30s. I think some of it was that she was no known for being assertive or, you know, bitchy to work with, which, you know, seems to have moved a lot also between studios, Mm -hmm. which was atypical, you know, for this time. I think some of it also is that her films, especially in this pre-period, she's sexually risque character. I mean, obviously, we think about the beginning of Trouble in Paradise. She's sexy. Temple Drake is the infamous film about rape based on the Faulkner Mm. Sanctuary book. So I think we have her and, of course, you know, our menage a trois in Design for Living. And she kind of just peters out, but comes up in interesting sort of characters when I've seen her being a little more matronly already. I mean, she's an old maid with Betty Davis and they were apparently really bitter rivals. It's funny because we think about the Betty Davis, Joan Crawford rivalry. But at the same time, in the 30s, supposedly Hopkins and Davis hated each other. I think it was like Hopkins believed that Davis was having an affair with Anatole Litbeck, her husband at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think there was just a lot of bad blood between them. And from what I get about Hopkins is she's just kind of really sassy, like in real life. And I think you see that in a lot of the performances of hers that I've seen in this sort of 30s period. It's interesting that, I mean, Lubitsch clearly valued her and enjoyed working with her. In the Scott Iman book, there's multiple stories about him like refereeing her rivalry with her other co-leads. Yeah. Clearly, I mean, he cast her in three movies in a row, essentially, and then wanted to cast her repeatedly in later films. She was almost the Carol Lombard character in To Be or Not To Be, which would have been interesting. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that. 
So even as far as 1942, 10 years after this, he was still intending yeah. on working with her. It's interesting seeing the difference between her and the Smiling Lieutenant in this, because on the Smiling Lieutenant episode, we discussed how her role arcs into the archetype that she would play later, where, you know, in Smiling Lieutenant, she plays this naive, needy, girlish princess who transformed into this jazzy woman. And in this, she is who she is in the end of that film. So it's almost like we're treated to two films in a row, this in Design for Living, that present us to her in this more exciting light. And boy, she embodies this futuristic in circa 1932 futuristic archetype so well you know no one's ever done it better she has such a great sass and presence but from what i understand she was you know the subtitle of this ellen berger mariam hopkins biography i just referenced is the life and films of a hollywood rebel so mm. that positioning of her because she really does you know other than she appears once or twice later in her career but really like kind of tapers out by the end of the 30s the role that i think about that she comes into later she appears in in the heiress, the William Wyler film, as I think she's like the aunt, like she gets kind of, you know, doesn't work very often afterwards. I think goes back into the theater and, you know, was a supporter of Tennessee Williams work. And he described her as like a glorious bitch or something. <laughs> the stories of her are so wildly varied. It's interesting. Yeah, because I'm hesitant to call her difficult because I think, you know, the women actresses yeah. standing up for themselves means they're difficult. So I'm hesitant to use that word, but she seems like someone who had a strong personality of forcefulness to her and stood up for herself and that maybe made her, you know, challenging to work with. And that I think we see this in her career and maybe why she lacks the longevity of other performers, despite being extremely talented, as I think we could tell from these works. And I think some of it is the pre-code. I mean, it's always worth we talk a lot about how actors, you know, the transition from silent to sound, mm. we see changes in the garden actors. But part of me wonders if there are certain characters that are so pre-code, you know, so sexually risque that it will be interesting to think about, like, does the code would manifest in people's careers differently. I would argue probably because, I mean, I think it's yeah. no coincidence that both Kay Francis and Hopkins struggled in the postcode world. And that's probably a good bridge into Kay Francis, who... So my intro to Kay Francis here is that I'll be very brief because I think you have much more interesting things to say. Like, it is interesting in how so many independent biographies I've read about her sites that run down her life. She is often referred to as someone who is not a skilled actress, is a clothes horse, and someone yep. who's basically hired <laughs> for looks. And that does not square with the movie star I see in Jewel Robbery, who is so charismatic and legitimately the skilled performance I see in Trouble in Paradise, where, again, yeah, you can credit that to Lubitsch's direction, but that pretty much means you have to write off the acting skills of everyone who's ever been in one of his movies. So who is Key Francis? She's, you know, again, that person who was huge in the early 30s and then like is someone I would say most people outside of people being extremely interesting in 1930s films have forgotten about. Mm -hmm. But she was, you know, one of the biggest stars. So I know her a lot, as I've told you, and I can go off for hours on this. I love William Powell. He is my favorite actor ever. And that's sort of was my entry to Kate Francis because they were in at least, I think, like eight movies together, six or eight movies together, probably more. Maybe some don't surprise where they overlapped. I think she is immensely talented in Jewel Robbery. There's this other film of her and Powell from 1932. So the same year that we get Trouble in Paradise, Jewel Robbery, we also get this really gem of a melodrama type film called One Way Passage, where Frances mm. plays an heiress who has a terminal illness and she goes on this last trip on a ship and meets William Powell's character, who is a criminal who's been captured and is being brought home. So he's going to his death in prison. She's going to her death mm. and they meet and fall in love. And it's just I'm not a melodrama person, but like I adore this film and I find her, you know, has this magnetism, you know, in these films is immensely compelling and talented. So she's at Paramount. She then moves over to Warner Brothers from like 32 to 35, 36 as she's, you know, doing her thing, but I think becomes dissatisfied with her role. So she starts kind of fighting back, pushing back, and she gets kind of subtly, you know, demoted to less quality film. And I think then her contract like doesn't get renewed mm -hmm. or it gets, I'm not sure if it doesn't get renewed after the seven year period or if Warner Brothers just sort of lets her kind of fall off. She is also one of the women who's labeled box office points. Poison alongside Barbo, Crawford, etc. Dietrich and Hepburn, I think, too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mae West, like everybody. So she's on there. But 
from what I understand, so she had worked way back in the early 30s. There's this film called Ladies Man, also has William Powell Mm -hmm. and Carol Lombard. And from what I understand, I think Carol Lombard then requested for Frances to be cast in this later film. She does from 1939 called In Name Only. And in this film, Kay Frances is married to Cary Grant's character. And she's sort of, you know, like crappy, you know, like kind of like shrewish wife who won't let him go, even though he's so clearly in love with Carol Lombard. It's a really, really sad film, but she does a really good job in the role. So I think she's sort of really, you know, unjustly forgotten. I find her, you know, really magnetic in a few of the films that I've seen her in. She's in a few other films with Powell that I'd seen. But again, all these ones are really rare. There's this really interesting one called Behind the Makeup, where Hmm. he's like a clown, if I recall. Again, I haven't seen some of these in years, but I think she has this really great presence that to me, her known as not being a good actress, I think kind of, you know, shoots her short. It's interesting because her story, I mean, we've seen this story before in this podcast. We're going to see it again. She's one of those actresses who is well cast in a very specific time, very specific place. And when that time and place passed, she was kind of left by the wayside, seemingly due to, you know, studio typecasting her or just, you know, not giving her great roles because they think, oh, she's just good at playing extremely beautiful people who don't have much in their minds. She was kind of tossed aside and had a fairly unhappy end to her life. You know, it's really unfortunate. I mean, we've seen this with everyone from Osios Walda to, you know, Paula Negri. The list goes on and on and on. I would have loved to seeing what she'd do with good scripts in the 40s. What would she have been up to? Let's talk about our last two significant new additions to the Lubitsch roster in Trouble in Paradise. And those are Edward Everett Horton and Charles Ruggles. And they are two of my favorite character actors of the 30s. How do you feel about Edward? Oh, Edward. Edward is my favorite. And I had forgotten he was in the film. And as soon as he popped on, I was like, arsenic and old lace, arsenic and old lace, which is, you know, where I know Mm -hmm. him from best as Dr. Witherspoon. So I was like, it's Dr. Witherspoon watching (laughs) it because I had just completely forgotten that he was in this film. And I think he's just sort of this great, I don't want to say straight man, I think is maybe, you know, what we would call him as or, you know, just kind of this unassuming figure who's just, Mm -hmm. you know, wonderful in everything he does. He sort of always does the these double takes or it's kind of like this very like very acted responses where you see kind of I think like a twitching in his face or this sort of initial reaction and then there's like a more delayed extreme reaction that sort of follows that I think he just does so wonderfully. He feels like the personification, Ruggles too, but especially Edward. In earlier Lubitsch films, he would have flocks of suitors and he'll have flocks of suitors again. He's like the personification of that flock. Yeah. Him and Ruggles are jointly two of the least like sexually intimidating men I've ever seen on screen. Yeah. He's like a guy who thinks he's the straight man when he's in fact the comic relief. Yeah, yeah. He'll again and again pop up in this role. I mean, in Design for Living, he's even more central as the establishment, right? He's always the voice of law and order, of reason. Although he does actually get to play against this a little in The Merry Widow, where he plays the hilariously inept Ambassador Popov, who cannot marry the titular widow because he says, I know what to do, but I'm too old to do it, which is a great (laughs) way to put it. But yeah, he's always this older, just slightly emasculated, but he's always delightful. And by all accounts, he was actually a very nice person. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I've read that. There's this great news article I dug up on him where one of the Los Angeles interstates was they had to eminent domain part of his property. And there's this hilarious photo of an aged Edward Everett Horton making a scrunchy face with fingers in his ears complaining about the traffic noise and I'm just like wow he lived the character it's great yeah he's just like everything he's in I'm always happy to see him in movies like I feel like I like I'm remembering him in I think he was in like holiday or yes against type against type he was in Top Hat which is another like delightful delightful film I think he's in Gay Divorcee. I mean, he's in like just a ton of these movies that are these kind of like really big 30s films. But for me, but in this, he was so great. And I love when he's like, he kind of reminds me of a doctor and he does the whole facial expression. Tonsils. Yes, tonsils. (laughs) And then he does his like various facial expression that kind of like triple, double, triple like contortion. He's so good at the double take. Like there's this one scene where it's just a succession. It feels like there's an entire scene that's written as an excuse to give him about five double takes in a row. And he excellently has those in Arsenic and Old Lace as well. Have you seen that film? Oh, yeah. That movie is insane. Fully insane. You know, so many of these movies, I think about these comedies, like could they just the norms of comedy have just so changed? Mm -hmm. 
like could trouble in paradise exist today and i do kind of feel like we could do something with that vibe and that like sophisticated like humor Mm -hmm. could exist it would never be as good of course but it could exist but something like arsenic and old lace and some of these screwball films i feel like you can't remake or like re capture that in a more contemporary iteration, in my humble opinion. Arsenic's so interesting because it's one of the most genre jump happy films I've ever seen. It's interesting where, I mean, I remember it throwing me for a loop because Arsenic and Old Lace starts with one plot where it's like, we're going to Niagara Falls. In a barrel, in a barrel. Yes. And after about 20 minutes, I had the when are we going to get to the fireworks factory moment where I was like, when are we going to get to Niagara? (laughs) And you realize that the film has no intention of actually following through on its stated premise. And this happens about five times where it's like, oh, I'm forgiving the film. I'm moving on to the next premise. I accept what it's giving me. And then it does not ever give you a chance to actually get your feet on the ground. It's great. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Anyway, so I was thinking of just his facial expression with Teddy Roosevelt, you know. Yes. Anyway, so we went completely off the rails on that one. But I love the oh, guy. Oh, it's all good. He was so fun and playing against Ruggles. And I would have happily watched a film with both of them. I would love to follow the two of them around. I think that would be a fun film. You can make a good argument that the reason everyone likes Trouble in Paradise is it's the only film to feature both Horton and Ruggles. And you're either a Horton person or you're a Ruggles person. And that's your favorite emasculated Lubitsch suitor. Yes. And I mean, Ruggles is great. He was first in The Silent Lieutenant, where he has a very small role. He's just in the beginning, where he's the guy that Maurice Chevalier steals Claudette Colbert from. And in this, you know, it's no different. And he'll appear again and again and again. He was in One Hour With You. I mean, he, if anything, always strikes me as a bit less likable than Horton. He's just a bit more of like a mustachioed square than Horton is. Horton, at least, is very sad and goofy. Ruggles, I mean, he's still very funny, but his type is a little more pathetic. Or like less lovable less in a way. Yeah, I think he's a little less lovable. The one scene that we really haven't spoken about at all is the opera. Lubitsch gets to make fun of the whole idea of opera. <laughs> yeah. I love you. I love you. I you love you. you. So, yeah, we haven't spoken about that scene, which is, I think, like the moment where the two of them really like shine. Everett Horton sitting outside waiting, waiting. And it's, you know, I think this really fun moment where we get with them. And then I love that he ends up inviting him to dinner at the end or has to invite him to dinner. And then he's like looking at the place card. He's like, I'm going to put this at the other end of the table. I mean, they just have such a great understated. It's not rapport because, well, I, I'll say rapport. I mean, it's, it's like a it's rivalry. Rivalry. It's like a friendly rivalry where you kind of yeah. get that the two of them, they can recognize themselves in each other. And that's yeah. why they spar. And then we have William Bowell, who is in Jewel Robbery. He's the only person we're going to discuss who is exclusive to Jewel Robbery, but we can't miss him because he is one of the greats, one of the most suave actors to ever come on screen. He's a vortex of charisma. Can you tell us a little bit about Powell? Yeah, I love Vortex of Charisma. And I also what I find is fascinating is I don't necessarily think that he is he is not conventionally good looking in the slightest either. I mean, he mm-hmm. has a very odd look to him, but he just has, you know, just this debonair persona. And I love your characterization of Vortex of Charisma. And he just has it. As I've said, he is my absolute favorite actor. And I think he just elevates everything he's in. So obviously, we most know him from The Thin Man, several of them, and my man Goffrey, the ones that I think he's most remembered for. But like many working actors of the time, he's in a ton of duds as well. I mean, what's just remarkable is within the context of this podcast, we talked about, let's say, even K. Francis, 1932, made Trouble in Paradise, Jewel Robbery and One Way Passage, which is her and Powell. I mean, and she's made more that year. I mean, just these scores Mm -hmm. of films. It's just the way that the industry has evolved, like to have a performer in three, four five, six films in one year wasn't weird at that time, but is, you know, would never happen now. And I mean, he's just in a wide range of films. So he starts, he was a stage performer and then he kind of entered film in the silent period. So I think like early on, he played like Professor Moriarty in like a Sherlock Mm. Holmes film. And he played a George Wilson in the first filming of The Great Gatsby, which is a lost film and in the silent period the film that maybe you've probably seen the last command where he plays against Emil Yannings and then because of this stage training performance he's able to make the transition to talking film pretty easily he wasn't a huge star what a lucky guy to have such an incredible voice not as a singing voice but just as a speaking voice he sounds like a cartoon character in the best way yeah 
So, you know, his career, he worked with Kay Francis at Warner Brothers on, I think they were in at least six to eight films together, potentially more that maybe don't survive. But people most know him for his work with Myrna Loy in the Thin film and many, many others. So one of my favorite, you know, gems of screwball comedy that I think is sort of comparatively less known is called Love Crazy. Great film. Highly recommend it. And then, of course, My Men Godfrey. But I mean, I just think this guy, he just has such great persona. And in the context of Jewel Robbery, I mean, playing off like let's this might be an interesting question for you Devin like what would it have been like if Howell was in the role that George Marshall played like what would that look like because I was thinking about that in the oh, yeah, Herbert Marshall yeah because I could feel and that was sort of why I suggested we talk about Jewel Robbery and Trouble in Paradise together is because of as we brought up this gentleman thief but like mm-hmm. what would a Powell look like in a Lubitsch film that's a really good question. The thing about Powell is that he's not always as hopped up as he is in Jewel Robbery. In Jewel yeah. Robbery, he is a fast-talking, just intense, he will woo you through saturation bombing. But he's not <laughs> always like that, right? In something like My Man Godfrey, he's a little yeah. more reserved but acidic. And then, you know, in something like The Thin Man, he's just completely at ease. I mean, in The Thin Man, such an interesting series to me because it's a romantic comedy where the couple is together, they're happily married, and there's never any sense there's any strife between them. They're just floating over the movie. And that, he's just so profoundly at ease with himself. And I mean, I can only think he would have done a very good job. He yeah. might not have been as perfect for the role as Herbert yeah. Marshall. You never know. But I would have loved to have seen at least something with him in Lubitsch because his sophistication and his ability, not just with sophistication, but to wrangle that into something more interesting. Like in My Man Godfrey, he wrangles that into an eat the rich. Yeah anger in something like Last Command. Again, it's silent, so you know he's using a different toolkit, but he wrangles that into a very weird character arc that yeah. goes from, again, righteous anger to weird begrudging with like respect for our lead character, Emil. And so in Jewel Robbery, he's just turning up the charisma to 100, just going, okay, there's nothing to this character other than, I mean, he's a fantasy. Oh, it's completely off-the-wall performance. There are other what ifs that I think like, I'm like, oh, I wish where it's like, I actually like Melvin Douglas and Ninochka. I think he's very good. I like him in Angel as well. But Cary Grant was Lubitsch's first choice. There's no matching Cary Grant. Yeah, it's just like poor Melvin Douglas because Melvin Douglas is fine, but he's not Cary Grant. No one is. Yeah. A couple other interesting connections are that William Powell was married at this point to the actress who would later take the role that at one point was intended for Mario Hawkins, and that is Carol Lombard. Yes. So Powell and Lombard were an item at this point. They divorced the next year and apparently stayed on fine terms. They co-starred in My Man Godfrey to great effect. And he requested for her to be in the film. It was at his demands. Oh, that's nice of him. What a good ex. Yeah. When I was in college, you know, years and years ago, Peter Bogdanovich came to campus mm-hmm. and he did a little talk and then, you know, signed our book. And I asked Peter Bogdanovich two questions. You know, when I got to meet him and one of them was about Touch of Evil. And I said, like, come on, like, do you really like Orson Welles is the natural sound version? But like, let's be honest, the Henry Mancini score version is just so good. He's like, I agree. And then I was like, (laughs) did you ever meet William Powell? He goes, oh, no, at that point, like he had, you know, been Palm Springs, like was out of there. He was going deaf by like the 60s, 70s and was very self-conscious about it. That's kind of why he wasn't around. Mm. He said, like, no, I never met him. But like, I never met anyone who ever said anything bad about him. They just said he was a really, really nice guy is sort of what everybody like had said about Uh, him. That's nice to hear about the good ones. Tanya, thank you so much for joining me on this kind of interesting two for episode. And for anyone, you know, who wants to watch Jewel Robbery or Trouble in Paradise, they pair very well. You can watch them back to back and have the most incredible two and a half hours of your life. Watch them and then come back next week and we'll talk with Will Ross about Trouble in Paradise some more. But thank you so much, Tanya. This has been a lovely, you know, I mean, bisected, but lovely recording. No, thank you so much for having me, Devin. And I look forward to hearing more on Trouble in Paradise. (laughs) It's funny how this episode isn't coming out for what, like six months? So we have a long time until we'll hear everything. I look forward to rediscovering this conversation with you and everyone else (laughs) in six months. Next week, Will Ross joins us for further discussion of Trouble in Paradise. Head over to ErnstCast.com for information as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. Griffin Scheel was our dialogue editor for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you happen to use. It helps other people find our podcast and therefore find Ernst Lubitsch. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 